Hello and welcome to the Get Him Kitty podcast. My name is Marcus K. Dowling. As promised, I've seen you soon before I saw you later. Welcome. I'm a creator, curator, innovator, and iconoclast. On this show, in 30 minutes or less, we solve for a future we love by obsessing over the past and appreciating the present. In this episode, we discuss the faith, the, the future of the restaurant industry in America post-COVID-19. Now that we've set the stage a bit of backstory, as a journalist, one of my favorite topics to write about that I was hopeful, actually, uh, just prior to the coronavirus, to be able to dive deeper into is the food industry. I see food in the same way that I see music as an artistic enterprise that nourishes the soul and enriches people's positive spirits. Uh, a great meal can make you feel incredible. A terrible meal can affect your mood for days and weeks and years. You know, like for me, I once threw up after eating a mushroom quesadilla from Trader Joe's. And whenever I think of mushrooms and quesadillas, uh, it's very sad given that Chipotle just released a new quesadilla. I get violently ill and it's really, really bad. So just that, I say that to say that uh, I care about food a great deal. I'm a bit of an amateur foodie as well. I probably know as much about food as I know about baseball. So I know quite a, uh, quite a great deal. Ultimately though, uh, post COVID, uh, the restaurant industry is going to be in a, uh, a great state of disarray as any uh, retail industry is going to be, especially in Washington, DC, uh, Washington, DC, uh, experienced its global restaurant boom in the years leading up to COVID. Uh, if you want a sense of what that looks like numerically, I always pull up data for these uh, episodes. And in relation to DC, restaurant sales comprised 31% of the city's 1.6 billion in sales tax revenue in 2019. And that's according to the uh, DC Chief Financial Officer, Jeffrey DeWitt. Uh, as well, he stated that in the first year of COVID, he expected at minimum that the city would lose a quarter of that sales tax revenue. I'm presuming that's a little bit higher now, around the, uh, the total of $400 million because of the restaurant and hospitality shutdown. Uh, this also is well to note in regards to the food industry is the notion that uh, real estate in Washington is exorbitantly expensive. So there was already a uh, slow buzz in the sense of heightened turnover rates for retail property owners not being able to uh, afford the exorbitant rents to uh, have uh, real estate properties in, you know, enticing areas in Washington, D.C. So post-COVID, that's going to be even more problematic. Uh, even deeper, when you think about the restaurant industry, you're looking at an industry already where 60% of new restaurants, they fail within the first year. And 80% shutter for their fifth anniversary. Those, that's uh, CNBC data for you in regards to this. And uh, Sean Kennedy, he's the executive vice president of public affairs for a uh, restaurant industry insider organization. He noted that findings that he did from a study made clear that 500,000 restaurants of every business type, franchise, chain, and independent, are in economic freefall. And for every month that passes without a solution from Congress, Thousands more restaurants will close for good. In America in 2018, uh, it was rumored that there were roughly about 660,000 restaurants nationwide. 
those are of all franchise chain or independent uh, origin. Uh, furthermore, as of December 1st, 17% of U.S. restaurants were closed permanently or closed for the long term, according to a study conducted by the National Restaurant Association. That percentage is about 110,000 restaurants overall nationwide. And of those owners, about 50% at the time, and this is in December, stated that they would be able to return to the industry in the months and years ahead. So add that in again to the idea that 60% of new restaurants fail within their first year, 80% shut up before their fifth anniversary. And in a place like Washington, D.C., you didn't have a lot of restaurants that had been open for necessarily that long. Uh, there's, you know, As far as the restaurants that I was covering for Course of Action, my column at the Washington City Paper, uh, there were places like Kane, which is uh, Chef Peter Prime's restaurant on uh, H Street in that corridor in Northeast Washington, D.C. Uh, he had been open for just over a year at that point. And he's still open. Uh, you can find them on DoorDash, and I would suggest the Oxtail. It's phenomenal. And uh, but as far as opening up as a brick and mortar and being able to sustain the business to maintain keeping a brick and mortar open, that's going to be difficult. Uh, even deeper, 90% of those owners in that previous stated study from uh, Sean Kennedy noted that without significant small business st stimulus packages, they would not be able to reopen. That's 90%. So if you take a look at that nationwide, you're looking at ultimately um, in the era post-COVID, that tallies out to about five to 6,000 restaurants over 50 states. So that's 1,000 restaurants a state. And even deeper when you think about that, you're thinking about weighting that versus population. And, and 6,000 restaurants for 330 million people that's probably one restaurant for, let me do the math right now. I know you guys love it when I'm on this podcast. I do math literally while I'm on the air, but it's the easiest way for me to do it. You end up with one restaurant per 10,000 people. Or one restaurant actually per 5,000 people. So if you think about that even deeper... When you look at that across population demographics, you're not necessarily looking at high-end restaurant uh, restauranteurs necessarily doing so well, because across demographics, uh, you have a greater preponderance of lower to middle class earners and uh, strictly middle class earners who are in those populations. So this is just really a devastating situation. And given that the restaurant industry is one of the backbone industries of the retail industry in America. Uh, the retail, this industry currently employs in the DC metropolitan area, just, you know, for starters, 65,000 people, 65,000 jobs. And if they use 90% of those jobs, that roughly works out to losing 60,000 jobs in, uh, in, in a group of 4 million plus people anywhere in the country. That's uh, terrifying. But in a place where rents are high and where the cost of living is exceedingly high. Uh, for instance, before the pandemic, the uh, median household income for Washington, D.C. proper uh, roughly ranged around the $95,000 to $100,000 rate. So you're looking at a situation that is particularly frightening. So digging into this even deeper, uh, Bill Miller, who's a real estate agent, he's a principal real estate agent at Miller Walker Real uh, Retail Real Estate in Washington, D.C., noted that 
His company had been on a massive tear of openings throughout D.C., and there was a depth issue about how many restaurants they could support uh, post-COVID if uh, retail rents didn't significantly lessen. A lot of places uh, worked out deals with their uh, lessors uh, during COVID, but presuming that you know things come back to even 50% of uh, where they were, and that's a very generous number. The idea that these people are not necessarily going to be able to afford these rents and that there's going to be a number of these businesses that are going to close is obvious. It goes without saying. And, and, and this is a frustration. This is a very real, very difficult moment for America. And I'm not even sure if, if people really get uh, the notion of that. Uh, even deeper, if you, again, if you look back at that data from Washington, D.C., the idea that the nation's capital, which ha was having unprecedented financial success, uh, the budget for fiscal year 2020 before COVID was roughly around the range of $20 billion. It's billion with a B dollars. And that's based off of the fact that they were earning nearly $2 billion in tax revenue from restaurants alone. So when you take $2 billion out of revenue, which is going back into a budget that is $20 billion, that's roughly one-tenth of the budget. In, in any economy, that's, that's devastating. So uh, I'm not sure if people get it, but the loss of restaurants is actually quite impacting. And that's why we're having this episode. And I wonder, I wonder, in considering stimulus packages and the like and what Joe Biden intends to do, if the potential for even remotely saving the restaurant industry, what that looks like. And if it is saved, what about restaurants are going to change in the future? Is it still going to be the same kind of uh, dining experience? Are the foods going to change? Are the types of cuisines that are popular going to uh, shift? Well, these are all things that we'll consider after this commercial break. And we're back. There's something important that I think needs to be considered in talking about uh, saving America's restaurants. Uh, foremost, there's a idea called the Restaurants Act, the Real Economic Support that Acknowledges Unique Restaurant Assistance Needed to Survive Act, which was considered in 2020, but officially was uh, submitted to Congress in 2021. Uh, it, if it passed the Senate, it would provide $120 billion in relief through a grant program administered by the Treasury Department. Uh, would it help restaurants, bars, cafes, uh, brick and mortar businesses that are in the food industry, and also caterers whose uh, businesses, they uh, took a significant financial hit, obviously, because events are not occurring as significantly anymore. Uh, that would go into effect alongside the Paycheck Protection Program, which famously in April was rolled out post-COVID, but at the same, uh, post uh, the onset of COVID, but uh, famously what occurred is that roughly 8% of the uh, PPPs went to the food service and hotel industry and a very limited number went to businesses that were run by black or Latinx people. Uh, that was also during the Donald Trump administration. So if you believe it's stereotyping, which you know a lot of people do, uh, that makes all of the sense in the world. Uh, there was about $350 billion that was made available in the first PPP, and that was exhausted in uh, two weeks. 
Uh, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, places like that, uh, large chain restaurants were the great winners, but the uh, preponderance of places, uh, the independent family run, uh, chef owner operated, uh, celebrity chef, top chef owner operated businesses were largely left out in the cold. And I don't know about you, but there's something about, you know, every restaurant in America being a Chili's or being a TGI Fridays or being a Ruth's Chris or being some kind of big box suburbanized retail chain that's in a strip mall or in a uh, shopping center of some sort. I don't know if that necessarily sounds ideal. I don't know if that's necessarily something that people want to do because typically in those restaurants, you're not getting a diversity of food options. You're not getting a representation for people of color uh, past the very benign options of Americanized Chinese food past World War II. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, Mexican food that is representative of Mexican cuisine from the 1950s onward. A lot of tacos, burritos, and cheesy fried stuff, for lack of a better term. And you're not getting the diversity of foods that have been celebrated in America in the last 20 years. So, for instance, my friend Simone Jacobson and her mother, uh, they run a place called Tommy in Washington, D.C. that just been open for a year. It's still open, thankfully. But... Uh, Jocelyn Yone as well. She's the uh, the head chef and she's Simone's mother. Uh, they're a family-run, independent, non-chain restaurant that specializes in Burmese cuisine, which if you haven't had it, it's, uh, you know, that it's that lower basin Asian cuisine. Uh, it's very savory, very rich, uh, strong flavors, very tasty. It's probably one of the, the quickest rising restaurants in recent history in the D.C. metropolitan area. And... Places like that are essential to the development and the diversity and the expansion of food culture in America. Uh, places like Peter Prime's, uh, Peter Prime's Cane, you know, another small uh, star chef run. Peter Prime's a phenomenal chef. It's run by him. He's at the front. Places like that that do uh, delicious oxtail and Caribbean cuisine don't necessarily stand a shot. Uh, as far as like, you know, the diversities in Asian cuisines that have been offered, you know, from Thai to Burmese to, you know, Korean, so on and so forth. You don't, you're not necessarily going to see that kind of stuff last. And that's frustrating and unfortunate. That's something that, unfortunately, because of the nature of the first round of PPPs, uh, we're not necessarily going to see, you know, some of those places remain. Uh, there's a second round that's coming of $284 million dollars. That was uh, just uh, signed into effect by uh, the Biden administration. And I'm intrigued to see how that's going to roll out. Uh, that's going to be, you know, for restaurants and small businesses as well. And the restaurant industry in the first round got 10% of those PPPs. One would hope that they get 25%, 50% maybe of these PPPs this time. So that would mean roughly... 60 billion dollars or 120 billion dollars at, at best 140 one would hope but is that even enough uh the restaurant industry is in america a trillion dollar industry and of course as i always like to say on this podcast america's already 30 trillion dollars in debt globally so the idea that these uh ppps this uh 
this service of monies towards small business and big business as well may not even scratch the surface to consider uh, best practices for the resolution of the crisis facing America's restaurants. Ultimately, what does this mean, though, for what will be served at these restaurants moving forward? I think that there's still a space for the high-end uh, three Michelin star meal, obviously. Uh, there's going to be fewer of those, and the prices are going to be even higher than ever before. But I think there's something to that in, in that particular subset of dining culture where that's going to allow for incredible diversity and incredible opportunity for inventiveness and incredible opportunity for the trickle down of culture advancement through food. Uh, the latest group of celebrity chefs that we have in America represent a greater diversity of cultures worldwide living in America than ever before. Uh, everything from Ethiopian chefs in DC to Pan-Asian chefs on the West Coast to places like Chicago showcasing their incredible diversity of cultures. Places like, again, like Washington, DC, you're gonna see that at the very top end. As well, there's also the need to do simple, easy, bowl and plate servable, family style cuisine. So uh, there's a person like my, uh, my friend Marcel G, who's a phenomenal chef. I, I say that word phenomenal a lot, but it's absolutely true in this case, uh, who has opened up a family style Middle Eastern chicken restaurant called Shababi. And that'll be opening soon. And you're going to see a lot of places like this opening up across America in the sense that what Shababi does is that it, you know, prepares like, you know, heavily spiced uh, whole chicken parts and fries and other types of food that are easily shareable, but done so with an eye and attention to creating top shelf flavor, top shelf flavor profiles for regular everyday cuisine. Uh, as well, I like to look at my, my, my friend, Adam Greenberg, who succeeded with the opening of a restaurant called Coconut Club in far Northeast Washington, DC. Not far Northeast, I would say it's more uh, Adams Morgan Ivy City, or DCOGs in Washington, DC at the, uh, the Union Market location. And he did uh, Hawaiian cuisine. And so he had a spam fried rice dish that was available there. And one of the things about Adam I found fascinating is that he quickly transferred from doing high-end cuisine with, or he's doing approachable high-end cuisine to doing just simply approachable cuisine. Uh, from the beginning of the pandemic to the summer and fall, he shifted to making submarine-style sandwiches, as well as the high-end on that menu being lobster tail uh, sandwiches. That's where we're headed. I look at what Adam's doing and I say, if you haven't you know, looked him up, look him up. Uh, you can find a lot of articles about him in the Washington City paper. Laura Hayes has done a phenomenal job in being able to highlight uh, the ever evolving story of the restaurant industry in Washington, D.C., which I think serves as a template for any other burgeoning metropolis anywhere in America. And that's going to be a lot of uh, chefs. Uh, luckily, if you're a well-trained chef, you understand 
how to prepare everything from high to low with a level of quality that is unapproachable in its excellence. So what does that mean for exquisite dining experiences in general? This will be my final point. I think that the era of fine dining as we knew it, this extravagant, exorbitant, wild, unrestrained food experience is done. Just is. 90% of these restaurants may close. Uh, the PPP more than likely will not be enough to be able to satisfy the economic uh, constraints of in, uh, what was an ever-expanding seeming list of restaurateurs and entrepreneurs moving into the restaurant industry prior to COVID. Fortunately, though, if you're a fan of simply made, well-served, uniquely flavored traditional cuisine, then you're in luck. If you like rice, you're in luck. If you like bread, you're in luck. If you like beef, you're in luck. If you like chicken, you're in luck. If you like vegetables or you're a vegan, you're in even more luck. So uh, I think that that's where we're headed. Uh, things are going to get simple. Things are going to get plain, but they're not going to be plain in a way that's un unappetizing. It's going to be plain in a way that is uh, appealing if you're not necessarily an adventurous palate, but you do appreciate quality and food. It's an unfortunate sobering reality in the case of so many other unfortunate sobering realities with which we're dealing because of COVID. But I think it's the one that ultimately, if we figure it out, we're able to really sustain ourselves. Uh, if you know anything about post-World War II America and Depression-era America, that was the space in which the restaurant boom occurred that allowed for fast food to become an American staple. Will we necessarily see fast food become a staple? No. But will we see fast casual dining explode and a high-end fast casual dining become the hallmark of the revitalizing, slowly revitalizing restaurant industry? Certainly. Uh, how else do I know so much about food? I'm just going to wait until the end of the episode to mention this, but you can see me this season on the Food Networks, the Foods That Built America, and Modern Marvels as a food expert. I'm very glad and very honored to be able to have this opportunity, and I'd like to especially give a shout out to the Office of Cable Television, Film, Music, and Entertainment from the D.C. government for connecting me and affording me that opportunity. Uh, you will likely see me doing this more often, and it's been truly a pleasure to be able to you know, share my thoughts about the food industry for the entire world to see. So ultimately, again, if you want to find me, Marcus K. Dowling, on social media, uh, you can look, look me up at, at Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, with a C, K. Dowling, D-O-W-L-I-N-G, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And as well, you can find a Get MKD podcast at, at Get MKD on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So once again, as I said before, I'll say again, I hope to see you soon before I see you later. Have a great day. We'll talk again.